Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into the game we all love. I mean, McGarry, and with me as always is the guru, Mr. Duncan Castles. We will start with market news. Of course, we always like to do that and supply you with the best information before, of course, you will see it anywhere else because where we lead, others follow. And Duncan, you got some news on a Ajax goalkeeper who's in much demand by Premier League clubs. Yeah, this is Andre Onana, who Manchester United actually tried to sign last summer. Um, they had they made an offer to Ajax for the player um, and had him lined up as a potential replacement for David De Gea at a point in which they did not know whether they would be able to convince De Gea to sign what turned into um, the richest contract in the, the Premier League. Um, Onana's uh, just 24, Cameroon, um, international goalkeeper. Um, he was a pivotal part in Ajax's um, march to the Champions League semi-finals. Very unfortunate not to make the final last season. Um, he signed a new contract with Ajax in March um, last year, but it was a relatively short-term contract. It, it, it expires in 2022. Um, and uh, it was signed with, from a perspective that were the the right offer to come in for Anana um, during the period of that contract, that Ajax would be prepared to sell him, which of course is Ajax's standard operating philosophy, um, sign players, develop them, sell them to more affluent European clubs for um, marked up transfer fees. Uh, they were ready to do that with Anana to Manchester United Last summer, they have um, their their coach, um, Eric Ten Hag, has said uh, on record recently that they're also prepared to do it in the next transfer window, whenever that opens, um, at a price that is suitable for them. There's been quite a lot of talk about the clubs that are interested in him and uh, suggestions that uh, Chelsea, Barcelona and Tottenham are all uh, ready to to make offers for the player in the coming window. I can tell you it's correct that um, all three of those clubs are interested in Onana and have asked to be kept abreast of any offers for him. Um, Manchester United also remain interested in the player. Um, however, the, for him to move this summer will take two things, which is one, there has to be a gap at one of those clubs uh, for a top-level goalkeeper. So Chelsea would have to sell Kepa. Tottenham um, would have to let 
their goalkeeper go, Barcelona would have to um, sell Ter Stegen. Um, that's in none of those teams' plans. They're not actively trying to move um, their goalkeeper on, with the exception, you could argue, of Chelsea, where you have Frank Lampard, who doesn't have faith in Kepa, and I think we'd be open to letting Kepa go if a, a buyer could be taken. But that is a potential point of conflict with Marina Granovskaya, who, of course, sanctioned what um, remains a record transfer fee for a goalkeeper when uh, they brought Kepa in as a replacement for Thibaut Courtois and uh, would not like to be seen to to take a, a big loss on the player. And Anna's stance is, I'm told, pretty relaxed because he has a, a contract that, that runs for just two more years. Um, he would be open to, to leaving this summer where one of those clubs um, or another um, top-level European club to come in with, a, with an interesting offer. But he's in no rush to do so. He's in a, in, a, in a strong position in the sense that with two years left in his contract, he can take the path of allowing the contract to run down with a view to moving as a, as a free agent in 2022 or wait and see um, if a big club comes in and offer in the, in the medium term. Obviously, by next summer, um, the kind of fee that uh, Ajax would be able to request for the player would be even further diminished. Um, which would uh, allow Onana to secure um, a bigger salary wherever he goes to. He's already very well paid by uh, Dutch standards, even by European standards. So he wouldn't be a cheap acquisition in in terms of salary. Um, another point to note here is that he changed his agents um, after signing that new contract with Ajax. And uh, that, that change of agency, I'm told, was very much with a view of, of assessing the, the right way to move on from Ajax, the right way to to um, take the next step in his career and the right time to do that. So it's not a rush situation. Um, there are, I'm told, no offers from those clubs at present. And this is something we quite often see with the goalkeeper market. When you're looking at elite goalkeepers, it's an unusual position because you don't really, as a football club, buy two elite goalkeepers, keep them in your squad. It's very difficult to manage that situation. So top goalkeepers have to wait before they have a chance to move. And it's um, can, it's a bit like a game of dominoes, the, the goalkeeper market. So it's, it's independent to any other position where you need one space to open up for a number of players to shift around. And um, it's, it's definitely some uh, an area to pay attention to. He's a player that will move. Um, to a big European club before too long. He's high on the list of all of the clubs as as a as a goalkeeper who is very comfortable on the deck, but also a, a quality um, stopper in goals. Um, and we'll see whether this coming window, where of course there will be less finance um, available to buy players, um, is the one where whether he actually moves or whether we have to wait for a year or two years for that to happen. Certainly the case, Duncan, that we are entering into this unknown territory, both when the market opens and uh, and how it's going to operate. But definitely the case that clubs are not putting any money on the table right now for any of their targets, simply because no one really knows uh, how the economic impact of the current global situation is going to affect prices. 
And speaking of that, uh, you also have some news for us on the ongoing story of the proposed takeover of Newcastle United. And of course, that's uh, being um, funded by Saudi Arabia's uh, Public Investment Fund. And even Saudi Arabia, as Roger Mitchell told us uh, in our podcast last week, um, are being affected by economic um, the chaos that's going on regarding, obviously, most um, importantly for them, the price of oil. Do we think that's going to affect in any way um, either the price they're willing to pay for Newcastle or even uh, the bid itself, Duncan? This is a question I put to um, someone who's involved in, in the bid um, after some statements from uh, the Saudi Arabian finance minister over the weekend um, saying that, talking about Saudi Arabia's budget, saying we must reduce budget expenditures sharply. Um, Saudi finances need more discipline and the road ahead is long. This is a result, as Roger Mitchell pointed out, of the collapse in the oil price. Um, As we discussed in that last podcast, around 70% of uh, Saudi Arabia's GDP comes from the, the sale of oil. Um, there are reports that Saudi Arabia needs the oil price to be at between 80 and $85 a barrel to keep it in balance, its national budget. Um, oil went in, well, oil futures went into negative price territory last month, i.e. you had to be paid to buy a barrel of oil because of the, the difficulty of, of, uh, of storing oil. Uh, someone when they saw that, made the joke to me that perhaps Saudi Arabia were buying Newcastle United because they wanted to, to fill St. James Park with their excess oil production. And uh, uh, that, that was the most <laughs> efficient use of the club in the, the current coronavirus pandemic where no football is being played. Uh, makes a difference from turning football grounds into NHS hospitals, as some um, football clubs have, have generously done through um, the pandemic. Currently, as we speak, the price of Brent crude is at $31.75 a barrel. So that gives you a sense of how far off um, Saudi Arabia are from balancing the budget and why their finance minister is talking about sharp reductions in budget expenditure. They, like every other country, are also having to spend a lot of public money combating the coronavirus. So they've got additional expenses, unexpected expenses. So the obvious question was, does this have an effect on PIF's bid? Because this is the public investment fund. This is the government fund, the royal family's um, sovereign wealth fund, a fund that um, the the chief executive of PIF, um, who is due to become chairman of Newcastle United, uh, said is worth currently around $350 billion um, in a recent interview and and said he planned to expand to $2 trillion by 2030. The answer I got back is no, um, it will make no difference. Um, They are committed to the sale. They reiterated that Mike Ashley is committed to the sale, that um, a deposit has been paid on that transaction, a, a, a deposit that PIF would lose if they didn't go through with the deal um, where the Premier League to approve it. Um, and they are still waiting in Premier League approval. Guidance I had is um, that they do not expect it to come through this week. And if they think it's more likely that that decision will be made by the Premier League next week, 
they are still confident on getting um, approval from the Premier League, despite the the extensive objections we've had over human rights issues, over sports washing issues, and even over potential conflicts of interests in terms of uh, Sheffield United also being owned by a member of the Saudi royal family. Um, issues we've we've discussed on a recent podcasts. Um, their argument and their, their guidance was that uh, it was more the, the current pandemic's effect on this deal is more something that should be beneficial to those Newcastle United supporters that are in favour of PIF buying the club in the sense that if we see FFP regulations being softened by UEFA, and the, the equivalent regulations in the Premier League being softened to give clubs room to overspend um, through uh, the aftermath, through the pandemic, through the aftermath of the pandemic, because they've lost so much revenue, um, so much of their standard revenue, um, then that would be an aid to Newcastle and they might seek to take advantage of it because unlike other clubs, they would have this pool of cash coming into the the team um, from uh, PIF that they could use to spend. Liquidity will not be an issue for Newcastle United, unlike the majority of Premier League clubs, unlike the majority of football clubs in Europe, um, who are who are some of whom are already seeking um, loans at high interest rates to try and uh, bridge the shortfall in cash they require to pay players. Newcastle United, if this takeover goes through, will have the the owner debt to Mike Ashley wiped out and lots of new finance coming into the club, which will, they hope, give them an advantage in the transfer market and hope give them advantage in recruitment. So uh, far be it that um, the the problems in Saudi Arabia are um, putting this takeover in jeopardy. The guidance I have is... Uh, it may actually make the takeover more effective from a football competition level. Very interesting stuff. And of course, today is your questions answered uh, and tying straight into that uh, last bit of information that Duncan has given us. Andrew's story, who's on Twitter at the intriguingly titled at Bacon one says, because Ashley was so tight, was he, with his transfer spending? Does that put Newcastle United in credit so we can spend more and still be safe from financial fair play investigations? Good question. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, Duncan, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this this is one of the reasons why Newcastle United has been attractive to investors is that um, for all the criticism of Mike Ashley and all the justified criticism of Mike Ashley, he ran Newcastle United as a very tight financial ship. Um, we all know he didn't spend much money on transfers. He didn't spend much money on wages. Um, therefore, the, the last set of accounts that have been reported are for the 17-18 the season. They're behind most of the Premier League clubs. In fact, it looks like Ashley deliberately delayed the 18-19 the um, accounts publication because this takeover was was ongoing. But the last set of accounts have Newcastle at 178.5 million of revenue, which is high end for the Premier League. It's not big six, but it's above 
the majority of clubs, a profit of 23 million and a wage to turnover ratio of just 52%, which is very low um, by Premier League and by English football club standards. What that means is there is room to spend. Um, anyone coming in would have room to spend and and uh, and still stay well within current FFP regulations. Um, the Saudis will have greater scope to do that because they can go down um, the route of Abu Dhabi when they they took over Manchester City, um, of Qatar when they took over PSG and put should they choose to do so, put Saudi commercial money into the club as, for example, um, shirt, uh, shirt sponsorship deal, training ground sponsorship. Uh, they could decide to put some kind of sponsorship deal in place for the stadium. Interesting to see how controversial that would be, given the scent that was expressed by Newcastle United fans when Mike Ashley put Sports Direct's name all over St. James's Park. But all of those routes are available to them. You have to stay within, for UEFA purposes, fair value. So you can't just go in and say, right, we're going to uh, rename the uh, St. James's Park as the Mohammed bin Salman um, Toon Army Ground and we're going to pay £100 million a year for that um, because uh, UEFA will say, well, the no stadium sponsorship in, in English football is worth £100 million a year, so you're going to have to limit it to a realistic value, uh, which might be, for example, £20 million or £15 million. It will be assessed by... Um, independent auditors as to what fair value would be. But add all these things together, the fact that the, the, the books are tightly run at present, the fact that Saudi Arabia could add a lot of um, additional sponsorship money in very quickly um, and still stay within FFP. Um, and there is a strategy to build up commercial revenues at the club, which have been very, very low by Premier League standards and very low by the standards of what you could expect a club of Newcastle United to achieve. So add all of those in and you you, you come up with quite um, substantial room for m new money to be put within the regulations into Newcastle United and spent on players. And of course, the expectation is that they'll be doing it in a depressed market um, where there'll be probably a lot of players of high quality available as free agents and a lot of um, players whose uh, transfer valuations have dropped substantially just because there aren't as many people with cash um, available to spend in the next transfer window. So that from, from that perspective, from a pure football economics perspective, uh, Saudi Arabia buying Newcastle United looks very positive and if that amount of money is spent in a sensible fashion should um, be very positive for Newcastle United from a football perspective on the field. Andrew, a very uh, comprehensive answer to your question there. I'm sure that covered most, if not all, of the points that you were interested in. Duncan, we know that this uh, window is going to be different from any other, um, and we know that the dynamics and parameters of um, football and transfers is changing by the day. 
um, one of our regular listeners at Steel Armoured has come up with a quite an interesting suggestion, one which I have certainly had discussions with people in football about. Could an NFL-style transfer system with no transfer fees be implemented in top-flight football? Just to remind anyone who doesn't know, the NFL employs a draft system which um, allows the less successful clubs to have first pick of the top college-rated players um, on the uh, beginning of or before the beginning of each NFL season. And other than that, um, no transfer fees are paid to clubs. Instead, they trade or simply offer contracts or better contracts to players who um, there's then that trading system which goes on with regards to what happens in between. It sounds sensible, Duncan, and I think one of the um, aspects which appeals to a lot of people in football about the NFL as well is that all contracts are subject to publication. So you know exactly what a player is earning uh, and the terms of his contract. Uh, So you know what you have to offer, uh, generally speaking, or roughly speaking, in order to tempt him away. Um, That in itself would reduce um, excessive uh, contracts in terms of wages, et cetera, because you wouldn't, you'd already know what you're up against rather than in some cases, as we know in football, where players are offered sometimes twice, three times their current salary uh, to move club when in actual fact, you know, maybe it could be done at a much more economic rate. <laughs> There's certainly plenty of people in football who own Premier League clubs at the moment who would love to have an NFL style system. Um, and there are lots of people who would love to have a salary cap which is part of the NFL system. In fact, you have the Bundesliga chief executive, um, Christian Seifert, um, in an interview he gave last week, um, saying that he wants salary cap, that that the Bundesliga would would actively petition for um, a salary cap. Um, He said the, the fact is a salary cap is illegal under European law. Should new signals be sent by politicians, and he's talking as a, as a response to the coronavirus and the impact that that's had on football, I can say absolutely UEFA President Ceferin would go to the EU and say, let's discuss salary caps, limits on transfer fees and agent fees. I will be the first to accompany him. Um, the American owners of, of Premier League clubs would love to have uh, the Premier League adjusted into a system like American sports where you have a guaranteed franchise a ticket into a sport that uh, produces large broadcast revenues where you have guaranteed access to talents through the, the draft system um, and where if you have a poorer season, you get priority access um, so everyone gets a turn at, at the best talent um, where you have no relegation. Um, so your seat at the table is guaranteed and, and, it, and it turns into a money-making exercise with uh, none of the volatility that can, uh, can mess around with your budgeting and your ability to make profit from owning these clubs. And uh, Roger Mitchell in his very well-received podcast he did on Friday uh, talked about this as one aspect of um, how a European Super League, which Roger um, and a lot of other people I, I talk to in football at present thinks is inevitable um, and and probably likely to come at a, a, a faster rate because of what's happening to football, the economic damage that has been happening to football at present. 
um, would be wanted within that European Super League as you set it up with salary caps. You, you set it up where the clubs, there's no relegation and it is a guaranteed money-making exercise for the owners. Um, the problem, one of the problems with NFL-style system is uh, where do you get the players from? So football, um, the, the development, the talent development, is done by the clubs at present. Uh, they invest in the academies. They fight to secure uh, children, essentially. Um, young talents at a young age, get them into their system, take possession of them, um, take uh, a material uh, financial interest in them to try and retain them at their clubs. And if, and if they do leave under circumstances where they're still under contract, they, um, they receive a fee for them. The American system is based on talent being developed by colleges and universities and separate from uh, the NFL itself. Um, so you would have to radically change the, the talent production and education system of football to allow that to happen. Why invest in your academy if um, whenever, when, if you decide you're going to have a draft system at age 16 or 18, where all the players that have been developed by all the clubs suddenly become available to anyone to sign um, on the basis of who's got the most money to offer them, persuade them that, that they come to them. And yes, you trade off draft picks, et cetera, but ultimately the, the players will have, have an element of choice in that and would have to have an element of choice uh, under European law. So then the, 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 the clubs with the biggest money have an advantage in that system. So I, I think it's very hard to, to get that to work, to transplant that as, as is from, the, from American sports into European sports because the, the fundamental structure of European sports is completely different. But the salary cap part as you hear from what Zeifert says, I think what he says about Chefferin being interested in doing it is correct. I know Roman Abramovich um, was interested in the salary cap once he realised how much football cost him and that, that Chelsea was essentially going to keep taking tens of millions of uh, money in, in owner loans from him on a regular basis. I think in the last accounts of Chelsea, he added over £200 million of, uh, of new owner loans um, to sort out uh, a, a, a shortfall in their, in their finances brought on by um, missing out in Champions League football. Um, Bruce Buck, the, the chairman of Chelsea, has spoken publicly about Chelsea's interest in having a salary cap. I'm sure FSG at Liverpool would love the idea of a salary cap. Um, I, I, I would imagine that the Glazers at Manchester United would love an idea of a salary cap because what salary caps ultimately mean is uh, more of the money can be kept by the owners um, and, uh, and they take greater profits from, from their football clubs. Whether you get better football off the back of it, I don't know. And, um, and whether the people who are actually responsible for the football, the players on the field, um, would benefit from a salary cap. I think that's that's a, a different question altogether because ultimately if the owners are taking a higher chunk of the game's revenue, it's got to come from someone and at present where it would be coming from 
uh, is the players. And of course, Duncan, um, if you like, there's already a kind of under-the-radar almost um, attempt to uh, make football more economically sound in that uh, the Association of Football Agents are contesting plans by FIFA and UEFA to limit the amount of commission paid uh, to agents on transfer fees, et cetera, et cetera, and contract negotiations. Now, effectively, that is like a salary cap. It's being resisted, as you'd expect, by uh, the AFA. Um, so you can imagine the PFA's uh, response to the idea of a salary cap for its members, um, who are obviously very well paid. It's come to light the PFA are actually asking clubs who are asking their players to take pay cuts at this moment in time to show their accounts in order to justify the percentage of pay cut that they are proposing, or indeed if it is fair at all to do so. So that's already a shot across the bow of the clubs in terms of any idea for a salary cap. But nevertheless, an intriguing idea. And if it could be adapted, then, you know, who knows, you could see Harry Kane move from Tottenham to newly promoted Leeds United. Or, and he wouldn't have any choice. He'd have to go because he'd be first on the draft pick, etc. Um, I think there may be a problem there as well, but that's maybe a question for another time. But uh, thank you very much to Steel Armoured for the question. Going to move on to Mike Searle now, who's at Mike Searle in seventy eight. Another very good, uh, intelligent um, one for you, Duncan. Are the PL and PFA? damaging the English game by continuing to test the water and whether the season will start again alongside the ridiculous comments from Gordon Taylor, who's been talking about games being played for less than 90 minutes. Look, I think that's a, it's a fair, a very astute assessment of what's being on, going on from the football authorities and from the Premier League in particular, the idea that they're continuing to test the water. Um, we've seen uh, the so-called project restart um, being extensively reported on in the last week. Uh, and the information I have is that the, the Premier League were briefing uh, their ideas on how you would restart to, to, to do that, to test the water, to put them out into the public domain and see how uh, supporters would react, how the government would react, how media would react. And also, interestingly, how their players would react. Because I think what we're seeing as this uh, crisis goes on is there is a significant distancing of the clubs and the players. Um, the players in the government, we've, we've had um, Glenn Murray on this podcast talking about his, um, I think, disgust is, is a fair way of describing it with Matt Hancock's um, showboating that, that players... Should uh, should hand over their salary um, uh, to charity and uh, scapegoating footballers when he wasn't asking other affluent areas of society to to donate to the NHS during the the pandemic. Um, we've seen the government now talking in in the the past couple of days that um, that, that footballers are now expected to go back and, and lift the nation's spirits by playing behind closed doors football and, um, and and taking risks over their health. Fundamentally, it comes down to that. We've seen the um, uh, Premier League doctors 
um, leaking a letter to the media um, expressing a huge number of concerns over the, the protocols involved in playing football, um, training to play football during a, a pandemic of a disease that's not properly understood, um, as they, they say in that letter, um, being asked to sign off on, um, on policies that could result in the, in the death of, of players that they are charged with the care of or of the players' families. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think Mike here is it's absolutely correct. They are, um, they're trying to test the water and, and I, I think there is an argument that they are damaging the game um, in, in the way they're testing the water. Um, he mentions Gordon Taylor's comments about playing matches of, of less than 90 minutes. That, that's a great example. You know, the, the, we know the primary purpose of, of playing football, again, is to get the cash from broadcast revenue. That's why uh, a number of Premier League clubs, by no means all the Premier League clubs, want to play the matches. It's to get the money. But the argument that that is being pushed is one of integrity, integrity of the sport. How can you decide in relegation promotion titles if you don't complete the season? Um, is it fair to uh, null and void a season or to forget about relegation? What does that do to the integrity of the sport for the, the when football actually restarts again if you start with a new season? Well, there's no integrity to changing the rules during a competition. If you go back um, and allow additional substitutions, as is one proposal that you have five substitutes, should we play ghost games to, to finish the season or reduce the length of time in addition to playing at neutral venues, taking away home advantage. Um, and, and, I, and I think this is, this is going to be one of the, the biggest issues if this debate and attempt to get uh, the Premier League back again continues is what players are actually available. Um, the, the information I have is that there are a number of players, Premier League players, who do not want to take the risk of playing um, under circumstances that Premier League doctors are flagging up as questionable and dangerous and don't, don't want to put their families at risk. Um, again, we had Glenn Murray on the podcast talking about how there's um, a, at least one Brighton player who lives with um, elderly parents and who um, was instrumental in Brighton stopping training because he felt uh, it would be dangerous for him to go in and train with his fellow players and then go back and stay with his parents and potentially spread the virus to individuals who, who were more susceptible to the disease. Um, I, I think it's clear and, and the information I have is there are definitely players who will resist coming back. And if you don't have a full cadre of squad, um, particularly if you're missing some first team, senior first team players, a couple. I mean, I, I've, I've heard of one uh, Premier League club that's threatened with relegation who um, I'm told are very likely to be missing two of their best forwards um, should they be asked to play to come back and complete the season under a, a ghost game, closed doors scenario. There's no integrity of, of, of competition there. 
Um, of course, Duncan, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but Dean Smith, the Aston Villa manager, has said that he has two players he would have to discount straight away um, for the same reasons. And having spoken to two or three other um, people at Premier League clubs, my information is that there, at the moment there are certainly three, four players um, who are doubtful at each of those clubs as well for similar reasons. So when we talk about integrity of competition, it's immediately going to be compromised by absentees due to very, very good reasons. Yeah, and, and I think I think this is this is where fundamentally the problem is going to lie in in trying to restart um, too soon. We've said in previous podcasts there, there are two big blocks. One is government, where you have the the French situation, where the French government said there will be no football played until the first of September at the earliest, which ended the league. Same happened in the Netherlands: no football, no sport. Until first of September, you, the KMVB almost immediately ended their league and uh, and and finished without uh, a champion, without relegation. In in their particular case, the French decided to give the championship to PSG and to allocate European places as requested by UEFA and to relegate and promote teams. They took different approaches in those scenarios, but the government has the ability to block. In the UK, we have a government that is having scapegoated players um, and uh, asked them to donate salary is now uh, trying to get the players to come back and be entertainment um, and to cheer up the troops um, for political purpose. So the government, it does not seem, are going to to be the block in this case. But you have to get the players on board. As we said on, on on the last podcast, the Italian football was the first major league to stop playing it stopped playing because the players were about to strike they would not put up with the circumstances in which they were being asked to play and I think there are certain individuals who we will not the authority football authorities or clubs will not be able to persuade them to come back and play and we're talking here contractually how can you force an individual to risk his health and the health of his family. This is, you know, this is not a case of a player going um, on strike over contract and and breaching terms of contract for some sporting reason or an attempt to move to another club. This is him considering that his health is in danger and that the health of his family is in danger. Therefore, if those individuals, and we're talking in some cases about super wealthy individuals who can well afford to, should the clubs decide to sanction them, put up with those sanctions and and say, well, look, you want me to play? You're going to try and find me salary. I'm unhappy with that, but I don't care. I've got enough money. I don't need to, to, to play these games. I'm not going to play these games. One example, we had Sergio Aguero talking publicly about this. When the project restart. Uh, story was floated by the Premier League coming out and saying I'm not happy about this I'm scared about the impact on the people close to me Um, I'm not convinced it's the right thing to do if Sergio Aguero decides he doesn't want to play football for Manchester City under these circumstances very very hard to persuade him to play a match he can definitely afford to, to sit on the sidelines and take whatever sanction Manchester City chose to impose on them 
even if they had the the courage to do that. And I, it's going to be a PR problem for clubs if they start attacking their players um, in this fashion because the players uh, decide to protect their own health and the health of those close to them. Of course, there will be an argument, Duncan. Uh, it's a common one in situations like this where clubs might just say, well, that's fine, you don't need to play because there's always someone who'll take your place and um, we'll just go to the next striker or the next defender or whatever uh, until you get to the youth team, etc. and say, do you want to fancy a debut for Manchester City because uh, some of our players are objecting to playing under these current circumstances. I mean, is that fair to put that pressure on other players, young, possibly younger players who would be more easily manipulated in a situation like this? Yeah, the... the Yes, there would be a question over that. Ultimately, it's the, the player's choice and, and, and there will, I would imagine, be players thinking this is my opportunity uh, to play for the top team. Manchester City would be a good example there. They've got a, a cadre of uh, very expensive, uh, carefully selected um, academy kids, uh, a number of whom I know feel that um, they don't have the proper opportunities to play at Manchester City. So that would be a chance for them to to demonstrate they do have. And, and, and maybe their personal choice would be, yes, I want to take that opportunity and I'm prepared um, to take the, the risks involved with playing. But bring it back to integrity of competition. How do we have integrity to of the competition when you're playing on neutral venues um, with... Uh, radically change squads before you even get into the issue of what happens if COVID-19 gets into the supposedly hermetically sealed bubble that they want to build around these clubs. You know, if someone within the squad uh, catches a disease, what what do you do in terms of isolating the rest of the squad? I, I saw a report of the Project Restart um, guidelines which which said that the league hadn't worked out what to do in those circumstances yet which if that's accurate if the league hasn't worked out what to do in the circumstances where someone gets ill because someone will it's inevitable that someone will contract the disease whatever plans uh, the club set out if they don't have a plan to deal with that most fundamental problem then they really haven't worked through these plans properly which maybe goes back to Mike Searle's original question, which is, um, um, are they just testing the water here? How serious are they about actually doing it? Well, I mean, it's an age-old marketing ploy, isn't it, to test the water before you actually make any decisions. And, you know, focus groups are used by, you know, all big companies and certainly by governments uh, to test out sometimes radical policies on the general public before actually deciding um, how to proceed with that. Um, in this case, uh, I think the government are pretty happy for um, the news agenda to be distracted from other issues regarding the pandemic because football is such a huge part of public and social life um, in every country in Europe. And therefore, as I said, um, the debate about whether football should restart or not and, and what conditions, uh, they're happy to allow that to dominate uh, as part of the narrative um, so that things like you know, the death toll in this country is not as talked about as perhaps it should be. But, um, you know, governments and moral opportunism, football clubs the same. I think uh, we've seen it all before with regards to that particular story.
I think that's correct, Tina. But I, I think also we, we we should mention that there is also the the tug of war here between governments and football clubs. Um, in that, from a Premier League's perspective, if the government called the league off legally, that would put them in a much stronger position with the broadcasters because they would have been told by the government they cannot play. It isn't their own decision not to play, which opens them up to legal cases from from. Uh, from the, the broadcasters who are providing the majority of the revenue. And as we keep saying, although there are clubs who do want to play and do what to complete, and Liverpool are, are obviously one of the, the most prominent amongst those, there are a significant, significant number of clubs who want the season to be ended and there to be no relegation. Um, so there, there's internal friction o- over that that process. Yeah. And Premier League have been trying to present a, a unified front on this publicly but there is by no means a unified front internally within the Premier League and what the on the, the best way to handle this situation. No, and of course, the longer that it takes for either what you know, body, either the Premier League or the government, to make a decision, then the longer the debate continues, which means you know there's uncertainty for everyone involved. But as I said, it probably suits the government more than it suits anyone else, except of course the you have to look that the, the clubs themselves are acting out of economic interest in terms of um, the broadcast money that might have to be repaid, the loss of revenues that they are already experiencing, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, as Paul Barber, Chief Executive Brighton, pointed out, uh, we are talking about people losing their jobs if we don't resume, but we can only resume in the safest possible circumstances for the people involved. Unfortunately, those two things don't necessarily correlate um, so um, it's going to be fascinating to see which uh, one of the uh, the two bodies blinks in this Mexican standoff without Mexicans um, in the next uh, couple of weeks, that's for sure. That takes us very nicely uh, into the Donkey Award. You've all been missing it. We've had so many requesting what's happened to the Donkey. Well, yeah, in these Testing time, sometimes things get a little bit lost on, on the way and, and the donkey's one of them. You know, we've obviously had some problems with our suppliers uh, getting those <laughs> trophies made up. Uh, we're glad to say that, um, you know, Duncan has personally taken it upon himself to um, get some gold foil and fashion himself into a small statue uh, for this week. So th- big thanks to Dunk for doing the donkey this week. Glad to say we've got a great award here. Um, we're going to call it the Liverpool Football Club Award for wanting it always. Um, we could also call it Goosey Goosey Gander um, in terms of what's good for. Um, and that's because there's a bit of a conflict going on at the moment um, between the women's team at Liverpool and the men's team because the Liverpool women's team is due to be relegated at this time if the league was to stop now in the WSL and have called for the league to be voided so that they would not be relegated, obviously. Whereas, of course, the men's team, and understandably, 25 points clear and on the brink, well, not even on the brink, well, well past the brink of um, claiming their first league title in 30 years, want things to be concluded as normally and quickly as possible. So we have, um, I was going to say three nominations, Duncan, but I'm going to break with tradition. I'm going to throw you a googly and put four in here just because we've got such a quality uh, lineup in terms of the nomination here. So let me just get the uh, the golden envelope, which I have had to make as well, by the way. Uh, that's my contribution to this week's donkey. Uh, as you can tell, it's proving a bit difficult to uh, get here. Oh, there we go. Very nice too. So the first is the uh, Health Secretary of the UK, 
Mr Matt Hancock, who, as Duncan's already alluded to, um, has been criticising players um, over uh, not taking pay cuts on the one hand and uh, making them scapegoats for certain things, and then decided to coerce them into playing because it would be good to lift the spirits of the nation. Well done. Matty hand job, as he's known amongst Premier League stars. Second is Paul Pogba, <laughs> the uh, controversial Manchester United ex-captain, ex-vice-captain, ex-player probably. Is he retired now, Duncan? I'm not sure. It's, it's hard to say. Is he the former footballer, Paul Pogba now? Um, he wants the highest wage at the club. He wants to decide the tactics. And he also wants to choose which games he plays and when he goes on holiday to Dubai. So he definitely wants it always. So he, may, he may well give Liverpool a run for their money if ever we see him again. Um, our old favourite, Neymar Jr., is a man who, well, has got it all, but wants more. He's another one who chooses which games he plays. He also has a high salary in world football. Well, sorry, outside of Leo Messi. Um, now he decided he wants to go back to the club that he's suing ironically, for a loyalty bonus he was due to be paid before leaving them out of loyalty, of course. And there's a strange case of his sister's birthday where he always seems to manage to be injured or unavailable for Paris Saint-Germain at time of Carnival. And here we go, Duncan. Here's your googly. Couldn't resist this. The lovely Baroness Brady, as she's known, who <laughs> said, that, yes, West Ham would be happy to play the league at behind closed doors, as long as you guarantee us we won't be relegated. So um, choose between your four, I think, some high-class contenders. Is, is Karen Brady a Baroness now? She is Baroness Kensington of Kensington or something. You get to choose, apparently. Uh, I'm pretty sure she wasn't born in Kensington or comes from Kensington, so that's a, an interesting um, socioeconomic upward trajectory. Yes, uh, adding to the long list of, of uh, football legends um, who have been handed peerages. Um, we were talking about Alan Sugar the other week. I think it's uh, Karen Brady with a bar- being a baroness just about sums up the the, the quality of uh, people who are who are ennobled by some of our governments. And is, it, uh, is, it, is this relevant to her winning the, the trophy or not? I'm getting, I'm getting no, lost she's, here. She's not. She's not <laughs> going to win it. And um, in fact, we haven't done the donkey for so long. You've decided to do a Kaiser Duck introduction. You've stolen all the lines and all the individuals oh, involved. No, so, so I'm just going to say, I think it has to be Neymar in this case. I mean, he really is the man who who wants it all his way every time, all the time, and uh, and uh, can't stick with one thing apart from his desire to be on holiday when it's his sister's birthday and not play football, for which he is so handsomely rewarded. Indeed. So anyone at Liverpool who wants to resolve their own conflict uh, of goosey-goosey gander, please contact Neymar on plus three three. Oh, sorry, not supposed to give that number out. Okay. Um Good idea. Get some advice. That's what we always say. Uh, that's it for today's Transfer Window podcast. We continue the debate, of course, on our social media channels at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Please, as you know, we like to get involved. We engage. Uh, we don't just say that. We actually are a podcast who appreciates our listeners. And that's why we try to give you as best quality as we possibly can. Um, if you want to contact us directly, then Duncan, as always, is at Duncan Castles. I am at Garbo SJ. And until next time, uh, 
We say be safe, stay well, and we will uh, see you next time. Thank you very much for listening.